You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, everyone. Nice to be with you again. I've, I don't know, it was a few months ago that I was here, so you've had me back, which is nice. And uh, nice to see uh, familiar faces, people I've known from various walks of life, including Rob down here. I haven't seen you for about 20 years. Rob, good to see you. <laughs> Makes me feel old seeing you with your kids there. I remember you as a little boy with your big trumpet thing wandering <laughs> off to school. But anyway... Um, I am getting old, so anyway, it's nice to be here with you. Um, I might pray and then, and then we'll jump into what I think is an important topic, actually, and a complex topic, so I hope we can um, get some progress on it today. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for everyone here. Thank you that you've brought us here today, that you care about every aspect of our lives. Thank you for your interest in us as a community and as individuals and, and and that you know what's going on in each of our lives, the struggles, the joys, the sorrows, the difficulties. And I pray that you'd just be especially present with us today as a, as a group and uh, you'd speak uh, amazingly through your spirit to, to us and so that it would make a real difference to our lives. Amen. Well... Some of you will know of the author and journalist Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Christopher Hitchens sadly died a few years ago of cancer, and up until that point, he was one of the most prominent atheists in the world. And he saw it as his mission, among other things, to speak and to write against religion in general, and I would say Christianity in particular. Now, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of Christopher Hitchens. I loved his writing. Uh, I've got lots of his books. He led a really interesting life, and he could write about it beautifully. And so I, I kind of miss Christopher Hitchens, actually. Uh, but I come from the Centre for Public Christianity, so it's probably no secret that we, at, at least at various levels, saw the world very differently. Uh, when he wrote his book on religion called God is Not Great, very pointed uh, title, he wrote, he wrote this, Religion has caused innumerable people not just to conduct themselves no better than others, but to award themselves permission to behave in ways that would make a brothel keeper or an ethnic cleanser to raise an an eyebrow. That's a great turn of phrase. In Belfast, I've seen whole streets burned out by sectarian warfare between different sects of Christianity and interviewed people whose relatives and friends have been kidnapped and killed or tortured by rival religious death squads often for no other reason than membership of another confession. As I write these words, and as you read them, people of faith are, in their different ways, planning your and my destruction, and the destruction of all hard-won human attainments that I've touched upon, and then famously, religion poisons everything. And when Christopher Hitchens says everything, he actually means everything. It's been terrible for the world, we should get get rid of it. Uh, on ABC's Q&A program a couple of years ago, they did a big poll. It was about 20,000 people responded to this poll. Would we be better off without religion? And 70, 70% of people said, yes, we would. You see, it's a live question today for people. Has Christianity, as the enormous shaping force that it's been, 
And undeniably that. Has it been a good thing for the world or not? And the truth is, not always. Not always. Would we be better off without it? That's what we're going to look at today. Dave Hambry asked me to talk on this topic, sort of less of a sermon than I'm going to talk on this theme I think it's an important one. I want to address it with you. So at the Centre for Public Christianity, uh, we've spent a couple of years making a documentary. It's called For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. It's a historical documentary looking at this very question, the impact of Christianity on the world, the good and the bad. See, it was about three three or four years ago now that we just couldn't help noticing whenever we did anything in the media, we tried to write for mainstream media as much as we can, Someone would write in, yeah, yeah, great, but what about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition and the support of slavery and the oppression of women and the hoarding of wealth and all the things, as the list would go on, the abuse of power? And we started to look at this list, it was a long list, and we had to recognise it's a valid list too. And there's certainly some truth to the complaint. There have been, of course, terrible chapters in Christian history. And so we sort of launched this documentary to try and speak into this question. And a very important part of it, I'm sorry for those who've seen that already, but, you know, let's keep talking about it anyway. Um, <laughs> the, um, and we'll recap the bits you missed. Um, but one of the really important things we thought we had to do was to concede that there's a lot of truth to the complaint. There's no point pretending otherwise. People know the history, at least to some degree, and uh, we we wanted to do that. So a big part of this was conceding the the, the complaint. And so we kick off the documentary, this short clip that I'm going to show you, about the Crusader armies arriving in Jerusalem in 1099. The Crusades, of course, were wars involving European Christians travelling to the Holy Land in response to a call from the Pope who'd asked that people come and reclaim territory that had been overrun by Muslim armies. And this is what happens when they get there. Jerusalem, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities on earth. Home to three great religions, the so-called city of peace. In the blistering heat of July 15th, 1099, 10,000 European crusaders broke through Jerusalem's walls and fought their way up to one of Islam's most sacred sites, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Thousands barricaded themselves in up here and sought refuge in the mosque. Some even climbed the roof of the mosque to escape. But the Crusaders burst through and slaughtered men, women and children. Some they threw off the high walls to their deaths, the rest they butchered. The carnage apparently filled this great promenade. When the fighting was done, the pilgrims, as they like to call themselves, marched 500 metres that way to the ancient Church of the Holy Sepulchre where they held a thanksgiving service. The irony is scorching. Near this church a millennium earlier, Jesus of Nazareth gave up his life on a Roman cross. How could Christians celebrate a massacre in his name? 
Now, we could spend a, <clears throat> the whole morning talking about that particular incident, but we'll, we'll keep moving. The point being that Christian history, and what, regardless of what we think of the people responsible for that sort of massacre, uh, Christian history is a real mixed bag all the way through. And at one level, this isn't surprising, is it? I mean, Christians are not the people who think they're good all the way through. Lots of people think Christians believe that. But, it, but it's more like, I like what Francis Spufford, the British writer, calls the, the Christian community, is the league of the guilty. People who turn up every week and say, we're broken, fallible people. We've messed up and we need redemption. That ought to be the kind of posture of, of the Christian. So it's important to recognise that. The Christians don't think their, their history is getting... They're not surprised in some ways that their history is sort of a mixed bag. We want to concede the criticisms of the church to the, to the world and say that they're valid. There are things that Christians, you and I, those of us who are believers, are rightly ashamed of. And we need to kind of lament over these, these parts of our history. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it's important to... Also, to clarify some of the popular history that's kind of off track. There are some exaggerations, some misconceptions. History is always complicated. And we want to just, I think we, we felt there was benefit in doing that. For instance, I'll give you one example. If you think of something like the Spanish Inquisition, which is famously an awful period of Christian history where people were tortured and sometimes put to death for incorrect beliefs. Can you imagine that today? Theological beliefs that they had kind of they were a bit off track. And so it's, a, you know, it's an awful period of history. But in the popular imagination, it has taken on a size and a scale that far outweighs the reality. Uh, I've seen serious journalists talk about the millions of people killed in the Spanish Inquisition, these secular martyrs as they're described. In fact, uh, historians today, not Christian historians, just Historians of the Spanish Inquisition say that it's probably around 6,000 people over a 350-year history, which is about 18 people a year. Now, don't get me wrong, one is terrible. One is an awful statistic in this, in this regard. And you're probably not going to win too many friends by saying, oh, no, it wasn't that bad, it was only you know, 18 a year. <laughs> Except that it's some, it just is worth saying if it wasn't millions and millions of people, then we should, maybe it's worth saying that. Another one was... Um, the Northern Ireland struggles uh, in, from, from 1966 to 98, which is often thought of as a modern example of how Christianity inevitably causes conflict. You, you heard Christopher Hitchens refer to it in that way. Uh, the more you look into this struggle, the more you realise it has almost nothing to do with religion at all. It's much more about uh, a, an entrenched tribalism and kind of e economic uh, uh, oppression. Of a, of a whole lot of people, and then the, the things that result from that. I mean, when I talk to the guys in Belfast who were involved in the struggle, they would say things like, this is not a religious struggle. You know, we, we weren't going to church on Sunday. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting thing to sort of to, to recognise at least the complexity of that and the way that religion, however, does get used. as When it's used as an identity marker, it's powerful in, in the way it kind of enhances this us versus them mentality. So a bit of a clarification might be, might be worth thinking about when we talk about this topic. Essentially, though, I'd quickly want to get to, the point, to this point, that the, the solution to this big problem of Christians behaving terribly, the solution to bigoted, nationalistic, violent Christians, 
is really clear. It's not less Christianity. It's more. It's kind of calling them to be more Christian, if you like. And sometimes people outside of the faith have been good at pointing this out. Albert Einstein writes in the middle of the war in World War I, I think something really interesting. He says, why, but why so many words when I can say it in a sentence? And in a sentence very appropriate for a Jew. Honour your master, Jesus Christ. Not only in words, but rather foremost in your deeds. Honour your, honor your master in your deeds, in your words. More Christianity, not less, is the solution to this. And so we want to keep driving people back to the founder of the faith to at least see what was he on about. Now, we've put aside whatever the Christians are doing for a time being. What was Jesus on about? And in the documentary, we try to, to bring this metaphor, if you like, into the, the, the discussion to illustrate what we're talking about. So this is, you'll, you may not recognize, but you will in a moment, one of the all-time great composers, Johann Sebastian Bach. And now, and have, let's, have a, let's, let's give ourselves a moment to listen to a bit of this. try to have a go at playing that. You, you might be tempted to think that Bach himself didn't know what he was doing. You'd be tempted to think he was a bit of a hack. But when you hear it played like you're hearing there by a maestro, you really sense something profound and beautiful and wonderful, actually. And so you know to distinguish between the composition and its performance. Okay, the two, two sort of different things. And what we want to argue is that the tune of Jesus is something we should judge on its best performance and not its worst. I think that's a, not a bad way to think about this, to judge the tune on its best performance and not, not its worst. And what was the tune? What was the tune of Jesus? What, it sounded something like this. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I mean, this is stunning stuff, revolutionary stuff. It's Feels impossible, right? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. How, how are you going with that? You'd spend your time praying for people who mistreat you. I know I don't do it very often. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold it from them. Give to everyone who would ask you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. There's nothing like this anywhere. I sometimes, very often, hear people say, oh, yeah, all religions say this, the golden rule, do unto others you'd have them do to you. It's actually not true. About the closest you get to it is Confucius, who says, don't inflict on others what you yourself would not wish done to you. You might call that the silver rule. Don't do to others what you have them do to you. A friend of mine says, it's, a, it's like the difference between me saying, I'm not going to punch you in the face, on the one hand, silver rule, to the golden rule, I'm going to build a, a hospital for you to take care of you. It's, it's a universe apart, in fact. 
And when people, and, and right from the beginning, people did take this very seriously. The early Christians were famous for their attempts to do this. And they changed the world with it. Stunning, beautiful results. And there are, in Christian history, right from the beginning through to, to now, undeniably some stunning examples of the tune being played beautifully and of it making a profound difference, not only to the lives of individuals, but really to whole cultures and in a good way. That's important to note. And so there is a good story. We want to tell that too. I think it's good for Christians to know the good story that Christianity has brought to the world as well as some of those other less, less uh, desirable things. But there's tons of this that we could talk about, but let's, let's just think about one of these that I think a whole lot of things come out from it, and that is human value. We have a whole episode on human value and human rights in the documentary. And it's important to recognise this is, as Christianity bursts onto the scene in the ancient world, is an utterly revolutionary idea. Most of us don't think of it like that because we've come so used to this idea that every person is valuable in the way that we, you know, we, we aspire to being like that today. So, so the Christians take from the Jewish scriptures... And Genesis 1, the idea that every human being is made in the image of God. Humanity as the high point of God's creation. Massive thing to say. Totally different to the rest of the creation stories that you used to get from other cultures where human, the creation of humans and physical matter was kind of like the refuse of the gods. Here, no, 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 this is, you remember the Genesis, you know, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then humans, it was very good. The high point. They take that and then they try to tell us that God has come, they turbocharge this idea with the idea that God turns up as a person in Jesus, fully human and yet also fully God, which we say a lot, but try and get your head around that. God himself becoming a person, fully human, fully God. It's the strongest possible affirmation of the value of the human person that you can get. And because of this, cultures that have been impacted by Christianity have this belief that every person, irrespective of status, of wealth, of power, of capacity, is to be considered of immeasurable worth and unrepeatable. That's the value of the human person, according to the Christian estimation. And there's something about our culture that's absorbed this and understood it, even when we've kind of let go of the reasoning, reason for it. It's, it's just important to note, historically true, that not every culture thinks this way, and certainly not the culture that Christianity was born into in the first century. It was routinely the case in the Roman Empire that unwanted children would be left on rubbish dumps outside city walls, often girls or disabled children. When the Christians started to think through the implications of their belief, they said, no, no, these are precious children in the eyes of God. We've got to go and rescue them. And they started to do that. Every life bestowed with value because they bear the image of God. A stunning thing. Now, because we live in the long shadow of that story, there's still a kind of a sense of it. But it's important. it comes straight out of the Christian story. Here is, and you forgive the bow tie of this, this guy who's an amazing theologian, but this is David Bentley Hart trying to explain the, the radical nature of this. 
as it, un as it unfolds in the ancient world? I think it's hard for modern Western persons quite to grasp how strange, in long historical perspective, their view of the moral good, of, of social justice, of what the human person is, or the unique uh, I mean, almost infinite value of the person as, as, as in each instance. It simply wasn't the case in the ancient world, and it hasn't been the case in most of human history. This isn't to say that, that Christianity overnight transformed uh, the way men and women viewed one another and viewed their neighbors and viewed strangers, but it certainly uh, started with a, a radical enunciation of an ethos that for the most part was unimaginable in the ancient world. And here's Nick Spencer from Theos Think Tank saying the same thing in a different way. I think probably the most important, identifiable, recognizable thing that people can be grateful for Christianity is when they look in the mirror in the morning. What are you seeing there? It is by no means self-evident you don't have a barcode on you that tells you how much you're worth. You don't have a barcode on you that tells you anything about your intrinsic identity. The idea of who the human is, a someone rather than a something, a someone irrespective of the fact they may not be able to afford a mirror to look into in the morning. They are not self-evident ideas. And it was the incursion of Christianity into what we call now the classical world, that brought about ideas that in engaging with human beings, you are in some way engaging with a bit of God, with an image of God. The implications of that belief are immense, and heaps of things flow out from it. A foundation for human rights, I would argue, laying the seeds for democracy and universal education and literacy, and certainly charity. Charity is a massive gift of Christianity to the world. Nothing like it existed in ancient times. And the early church takes this notion of justice for the oppressed from the Jewish world and gave it a slant of universal love. And so right from the beginning, Christians took this very seriously. And it made a huge difference to the world. So we get these early monastic hospitals for the destitute and dying around the time of Constantine. And, and then we get people like this woman, great hero, Fabiola, St. Fabiola, uh, who was a very wealthy woman who gave away her wealth in order to establish what you could call the first public hospital in Western Europe. So if you've been in a hospital... We should thank Fabiola for that. I met someone called Fabiola the other day, and we had this sort of conversation. So from Fabiola in the 4th century to John Wesley in the 18th century, standing in the snow as an 80-year-old begging money for the poor, to Lord Shaftesbury in, the, in London in the 19th century, using his whole political career to work for the working poor to make life better for them. He was a hero to the working classes. They lined the streets of London for his casket to go past the day of his funeral sort of an aristocratic man, his whole life driven by his Christian faith to serve those people. To today, people like Catherine Hamlin, most of you would know about, who left a sort of affluent, uh, comfortable existence on the north shore of Sydney to work for decades in Ethiopia, bringing relief to people suffering from the terrible injuries from childbirth and, and or rape. To my friends, Alan and Sheena Gaston, giving 
comfort to dying children in the public hospitals of Durban around in South Africa. The Christian notion of charity and the good has made a massive difference to the world. Were Christianity to be eradicated? There's a good question you asked at the start. It would be a world where millions more would go unfed and uncared for every day. At, very, at the very least, we can say that. And so top 23, 23 of the top 25 charities today are faith-based charities. It's a good story to tell there. You know, I don't want to be sort of too triumphalist about that, but it's good for people to know this sort of thing. And then I start to talk too fast when I realise I'm getting... My wife tells me, stop talking so fast when you get to... To, uh, you're rushing for time. Um, but I will move on to the, to, the, to the last kind of main point I want to make. And that is we started today talking about people who, followers of Christ, who are acting in brutally violent ways. And we gave one example of that, but we could talk all morning about other examples of the same thing. But there are people who've taken the tune of Jesus seriously, if I can keep pushing that metaphor who have contributed enormously to a peaceful world, sometimes in very difficult circumstances. And so we tell, I love to tell the story of Martin Luther King and his campaign for non-violent resistance in, in uh, developing civil rights for African Americans in the 50s and 60s. And our focus is on, it, on the way his faith informed and motivated all that he did. And I love to remind people that this idea of non-violence was not just about meekly submitting in a kind of a weak way. These guys were hardcore. They would go to the most racist parts of America, take people out on the streets and allow them to be bashed to show on whose side justice lay. And this is how King explained it. He says, non-violence is a powerful and just weapon. It's a weapon unique in history which cuts without wounding. I love that cuts without wounding, and ennobles the man who wields it. It's a sword that heals. Which I love that. A sword that heals. Let's have a, there's a sort of three or four minute clip here of, of, something about, of something of this story, and then I'll just finish off after that. So I do this one more click. You press play on that. Jesus gave the world a new tune when it came to enemies. Relinquish violence in favour of love. Someone who truly embodied that radical teaching to great effect was a Baptist preacher from America's South. He led the fight for civil rights for African Americans from 1955 until his assassination in 1968. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. On August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, DC, King delivered a piece of rhetorical brilliance that became a high point of the civil rights movement. Under the gaze of one great emancipator, he would unfold his vision of another social revolution. 250,000 people gathered here for the March on Washington, a massive rally to demand civil and economic rights for African Americans. It was late in the day and King stepped up to the microphone and delivered his unforgettable I Have a Dream speech. 
One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Littered through the speech were allusions to Shakespeare, famous folk songs, the Declaration of Independence, and especially the Bible. Have a listen to this. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. That's straight out of the book of Isaiah. Or what about this from the prophet Amos? We will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. King wasn't just a great orator. His whole approach to the battle for civil rights was shaped by his faith and his understanding of the profound ethic of love at its center. Martin Luther King uh, was able to apply the Christian notion of love and connect it to the Gandhian method of nonviolent resistance in a very powerful way. The idea that you can resist a system but still love individuals um, and treat them with respect and honor. The idea that evil must be resisted, it should never be normalized. Um, and the idea that, you know, mass uh, nonviolent action can be a force for powerful change um, is a set of principles and a message that I think will endure the, the test of time. King began his journey into the leadership of the civil rights movement here at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, where he was thrust, reluctantly at first, into the limelight as a key leader of the Montgomery bus boycott. For several weeks now, we, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, have been involved in a non-violent protest against uh, the injustices which we have experienced on the buses for a number of years. This is a non-violent protest. We are depending on moral and spiritual forces using the method of passive resistance. One night when the Montgomery bus boycott had gotten started, uh, he received a uh, telephone call from someone who said that he was going to be killed, his family was going to be killed, his house was going to be bombed. You know, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, he just sat down at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and said a prayer, which basically was, Lord, I'm down here trying to do good, but I'm losing my courage. And uh, he said he heard a voice speaking to him, saying, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, stand up for what's right, stand up for justice, and I will never abandon you, I will never leave you. I'll never leave you alone, I'll never leave you alone. And for King, that kitchen table experience became for him the rock solid basis for his activism, even though he knew uh, as his life went on and on that he was not gonna die in bed. <clears throat> he knew he was, he was not gonna die in bed, and nor did he. Uh, one, of the, one part of that story that was particularly kind of impacting for me personally was when we went to the house in Montgomery. Uh, I've got a picture there. It was filming there. Um, and uh, as I said earlier, it was sort of early in the, in the movement, really, early in, the, in, that, in that struggle. And that couple of days after what he described there was that epiphany where he sort of felt God speaking to him just a couple of days after that, his house was firebombed and the front of the house kind of blown off. Uh, 
his wife and daughter were inside, but they were down further at the back and they, they ended up being okay. But the night of that event, heaps of King's supporters gathered at the front of the house and they were armed. They got themselves sticks and guns and shovels and this sort of stuff and they were looking for a kind of, we've got to find out who did this and get them back. And it's an entirely natural thing. Here's their, the guy they love who's leading them in this, in this thing and he's been, his family's being attacked. We're going to go and defend him. And then King, they're waiting there for him to come. He comes out onto that, what was left of that front porch of the house. And he says this to them. He addresses the crowd. People are trying to support him. He says, now listen, I want you to go home. We're not doing this. We're not going to do it this way. This struggle we are going to continue to do in the way of Jesus. I want you to go, and I love this bit, I want you to go and love your white brothers no matter what. Can you imagine saying that? Love your white brothers no matter what, because this is the way we're going to do it. I think it's an incredible reaction. And it really marked the way he would do things all the way on from that time on. It was kind of what he lived for, it was what he died for. And I think it's an astonishing thing. And not many of us can live like that, I don't know that I can. It almost looks superhuman, or perhaps we should say supernatural. But I do think that when anyone sees that, no matter who they are, what sort of faith or not faith they have, they see something there and they recognise they're seeing something true and beautiful and good and sort of life-giving. This is playing the tune in a way that everyone can be glad of. And I wonder what you make of that kind of life. I think they give a glimpse of the best of Christianity and its commitment to radical love, selfless, sacrificial love, the embracing of what Jesus set as the ideal. We had that passage read from Paul's uh, letter to, uh, to the Colossians, and it says, Therefore, as God's people, sorry, let's have a look at it there. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with these things, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's worth sort of dwelling on those things for a moment. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another. Forgive each other for for grievances if you have against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. I reckon that's a good passage to dwell on this week. As we think about our own lives, what we're like out in our, li- in our lives and amongst other people, and what we're like as a community, would the world be better off without that kind of Christianity? Well, I, I really don't think so. I think Christianity have, has impacted the world in powerful ways. When those who claim to follow Christ have been out of tune with him and discordant with that that original tune, there have been some dreadful results. But when the tune's been played well, the positive contribution has been immense, shaping the world in profound ways and in ways that every person can be glad of. And may that be the case going forward. As a community, as individuals and as a community, may we be the sort of people who play in tune and make a difference and a positive difference to the common good.